And so ultimately, I would say probably the first and most important question that we have and that we ask ourselves as we get to, to the Westminster Confession is, why do we use creeds and why do we use confessions in the church? I know in many churches that is not the case, um, but in our church, as a Presbyterian church, we believe um, that the, the Westminster Confession is of great value to us. And as every Sunday, um, we recite the Lord's Prayer as well as the Apostles' Creed. And so why do we do this recitation of creeds? And why do we learn and study the confessions? And so firstly, I would, I would like to define a creed as something which we believe. Creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means to believe. And so when we speak of the Apostles' Creed, we basically say that this is what the apostles believed. And so this creed is really old. Um, it was written in, in the 4th century. And the reason it was written was to give the building blocks of the faith, of our faith, but also to guard our faith against possible heresy that started to creep in into the church. And so when we look at the creeds as a whole, whether it be the Athanasian Creed or the Apostles' Creed, we see that what all creeds have in common is that they seek to find and ground the theology of the creed in the very identity of who God is. And so whether we speak about the meaning of baptism or whether we speak about the Lordship of Christ, all of that is seen in the identity of God. And so when you read the creed and when you recite the creed as we do on Sundays, I want us all to be mindful of the fact that the creeds are grounded in the very identity of who God is. And so the creeds teach us way more than merely what baptism means. It teaches us way more about how we are to obtain salvation. But when we think about the Apostles' Creed and when we recite the Nicene Creed, we should be mindful of the fact that the creeds tell us who God is and how we are to worship Him. And so, as we move on from, from creeds to confessions generally, I would define confessions as a statement of something which we believe. You know, the Bible speaks of us confessing with our mouth and believing in our heart. And that's, that's sort of the idea of a confession. It's, it's confessing something with your mouth that you believe in your heart. And so, a big reason why many of us today might not even be familiar with the notion of confessionalism or the notion of what confessions are, is this rise of individualism in the church in the last hundred years. And so what I mean by individualism is the sense that my faith is only my faith. So when I read the Bible, I, I read it for myself. When I pray, I pray for myself. And while it's important for us to, to realize that reading the Bible by yourself is important and we should pray, the church historically found great benefit in reading the Bible together and praying together. And that is where the confessions come in, is that when we take a step back, we see the confessions as a means for us to take a glimpse into what the church has historically believed and how we can learn from the church, not as individuals, but as a corporate collective, as a, as a church. And so the purpose of the course that I will be teaching um, for the coming weeks is ultimately to look at how the confessions are important for us today, as well as how we can learn from them in the past. And so throughout the coming weeks, we'll be looking back and we'll be looking forward, looking back at how the church has done things 
and what the church has believed, but also looking forward into what this teaches us about how we are to live our lives today and in the coming years and months that lie before us. But a very important question that I think we need to realize and an important point I want to make today is that we do not believe that the creeds or the confessions are on par with Scripture. We do not, we do not recite the, the Westminster or believe in the Apostles' Creed and say, well, this is on par with Scripture. We believe that they teach us about Scripture. We believe that they are scripturally based, but Scripture is the only Word of God. The Westminster Confession is not the Word of God. The Apostles' Creed is not the Word of God, but rather they summarize what the Word of God teaches. And I hope that in the coming weeks you'll be able to see this and that in the coming weeks we may be able to gain knowledge of the Scriptures as we gain knowledge of the Westminster Confession. And so I would hope that the notion that the Westminster is important doesn't make you doubt whether Scripture is sufficient. Yes, Scripture is sufficient. Yes, the Scripture alone is, is our authority. But the, the Scriptures as well as the Confession are really important. And so I would give us three reasons why we as Presbyterians use the Westminster Confession. But I mean, there are, there are various other confessions. You have the Belgian Confession, which is used in, in other Reformed churches. But as we, as we focus today, why are we as Presbyterians convinced that the Westminster Confession is important? Why do we use this? And so I believe there are three main reasons why we use confessions and why we use the Westminster. And the first one is it teaches us about Orthodox doctrine. There is this running joke that says if you put three Christians in a room, you'll get five different opinions. And that's as much true 500 years, 1,000 years, even 2,000 years ago as it is today. If you put a bunch of believers in a room and ask them a question like, who is Christ? What do you believe about baptism? What do you believe about communion of the saints? You're going to be getting various opinions. And so one of the main reasons why the Westminster was written and why we use it was to sort of fence the doctrines of the church as guardrails. And so I would like to imagine it is when you walk down stairs, you have these guardrails that you can hold on to as you walk down. And so when it's slippery, you can obviously fall. But if you have guardrails to hold on to, it keeps you from falling down the stairs. And so various times we see this with the same as heresy. Heretical teaching, I would say, is almost like a slippery slope or slippery steps. That as you start walking in heresy, it's very quickly that you fall down those stairs. And we use the Westminster Confession because we believe that it's like guardrails that you can grab onto as you kind of start slipping in heresy. The Westminster Confession kind of brings you back to like, no, this isn't what we believe. We don't believe that about the nature of Christ. And it, yeah, as guardrails then keeps you from slipping down. Secondly, we use the Westminster Confession because we believe it's a great summary of our faith. And while the Bible gives us the perfect summary and the, it's perfect to teach us what we believe, it's quite large. And a lot of people have not really gone through the Bible and know what they believe. And this is where the Westminster is very important in that it provides a summary of what we believe in much less words and much less pages than the Bible. Now again, I'm not saying study the Westminster and neglect studying the Bible, 
But it is a great summary if, if you're unsure about the nature of faith or the nature of salvation or baptism to go to the Westminster as it points you to the various scriptures that point to those specific doctrines. But a second thing that I would remind us when we study the Westminster is that the Westminster, although it summarizes our faith, it also provides an antidote to modern summaries of faith. So these days you'll get summaries of faith and say, the only thing you need is to believe this. And it summarizes the Christian faith in one sentence. And so while the Westminster is a summary of faith, it's almost an antidote to a simplistic summary of faith, since the Westminster is much larger than just one sentence. The Westminster is divided up in various chapters of our faith. And so it does sort of both. It, it boils down our faith to several chapters, yet it provides an antidote to those who say, the only thing you need for salvation is to pray this prayer. The only thing that you need to believe about the Christian faith is this one sentence. The Westminster provides both a summary as well as an antidote to an oversimplistic nature of the Christian faith. And then thirdly, I would say we use the Westminster to learn from those who went before us. And this is something which is in line with the, the rise of individualism, something that we in the modern church have forgotten, is that there is a 2,000-year history of the Christian church and of the Christian faith that we are fortunate to become a part of when we become Christians. And these people have wrestled with various doctrines and issues that we are addressing and wrestling with today. If you think that the modern church, or, you know, we're the only people to address homosexuality in culture, <laughs> go and read what happened in Greek culture 2,000 years ago. If you guys think we're the only church or the only time when the church hears, yeah, you can divorce the New Testament from the Old Testament. The laws in the Old Testament are not applicable to Christians today. Go read what happened in, in the days of the Puritans 400 years ago. The church historically have struggled with exactly the same things as we are struggling with today. And so when we read the Westminster, we are ultimately doing theology and learning from the church 400 years ago. And so there's much that we can apply to our modern contexts today. The, the theology of the past is still relevant since we know people don't really change. The ways in which they sin is just a bit different and they devise new ways of sinning. And so as we continue, I would like to give you guys a, a quick overview of the historical uh, landscape in which the Westminster Confession was written. I believe it's, it's very important. You know, they say when you buy a house, there is one thing that is very important, and that's location, location, location. And I would say the same is when we study any historical texts or historical events, it's context, context, context. is really important. And so many times when we read the Confession, I mean, we, we read a question this morning, we are not aware that the people in the pews, when the Confession was written, would have heard gunshots or cannon fire. But that was the context in which the Westminster was written. It was written during a time of great civil war and distress in the British Isles. And I'm, I always tell this to people that whenever I read the history of the Westminster or about the Puritans, I think this would make an amazing movie or series. 
If you're gifted at editing or acting, I would truly encourage you to make a series based on the Puritan history because you have everything that a great series has. I mean, you have politics, divorce, adultery, espionage, treason, war. There's like everything that a great series has is, is in the history. And we ob- obviously, a lot of us, we don't know this unless we take a look at the history. And so for the next few minutes, I would just quickly glance over the history. There are a few books I can recommend if you find this type of stuff interesting. But this, I would say the history of the Westminster starts at the Reformation. So for those of you that are unaware, the Reformation was basically this one guy, Martin Luther, who was a priest in the Catholic Church, who realized that a lot of the people sitting in the pews when they hear the Latin Mass are unable to understand Latin, the Bible hasn't been translated, so they're unable to read the Word of God by themselves. And this is ultimately what led to the Reformation. The Reformation was a time period where the church kind of got reborn, in a sense, where the Bible was placed into the hands of everyday people in their own language. And the king, Henry VIII, uh, the king of England, was a great defender of Roman Catholicism. He was actually an opponent of Luther's reform. And so the Pope gave Henry VIII the title of Defender of the Faith. And so Henry had this great authority within the Catholic Church as the King of England or, you know, um, the King of Great Britain. And so Henry's first wife, Catherine, was unable to give him a son. So Henry decided, well, if my wife can't give me a son, I guess I'll get another one who can. But divorce wasn't allowed within the Catholic Church, um, since the Catholic Church believed that if you're married to one woman, especially if you're the king, you're not allowed to divorce. And so Henry decided, well, in that case, I'll start my own thing. And so Henry, as king of England, decided that England is going to go away. England is no longer part of the Catholic Church. England now has its own church, the Church of England, and I, Henry, is the head of the church. And so today, if you're in England, if you go to an Anglican church and they speak of the king now or the queen as being the head of the church, that is a result of King Henry VIII deciding that the Church of England is no longer part of the Catholic Church because he wanted to divorce his wife and marry another woman in order that he may gain a son. And so Henry's first son, Edward VI, was born to Henry's third wife, actually Jane, and Edward would go and become king after Henry. And something that was really interesting about Edward VIII or Edward VI is that he was a lot more noble as a king, but he was also a lot more pious as a Christian. And so instead of merely being head of the church, he decided to take the Reformation as Martin Luther started it and apply many of the same principles within the Church of England. And so when we see... uh, you know, Oxford or Cambridge as universities, which were great centers of theological study, these were direct results of Edward VI. Edward saw that there's a great need for theological training of Reformed doctrine within the Church of England and with England as a whole. And he started Oxford and Cambridge and invited various professors to teach theology at these centers. During this time, they also published the Book of Common Prayer and the 42 Articles. And so this was a great time of the flourishing of the Reformed faith in England. Uh, After Edward VI came Mary. 
And Mary I was called Bloody Mary. And the reason for this was Mary was vengeful of her father, Henry VIII. So Mary was born to Henry's first wife, who couldn't give him a son, and gave him his daughter, Mary. Mary hated Reformed theology. Mary hated the Protestants. And Mary tried to take the Church of England back to its Catholic roots. And so under Mary, we see the Church of England going back to Catholicism. But because of all the opposition that Mary received from many of the Reformed Englishmen, she killed more than 800 of these ministers who prepared Reformed or Protestant teachings as a means to preserve Catholicism. One of the interesting things that happened, though, under Queen Mary is that her persecution had the opposite effect, as is the case today a lot of times in persecution in persecuted countries where the government suppresses Christianity and then you just see a great flourishing. What happened under Mary is that she exiled many of the Puritans or the Reformers at that time, and they went to study at places like Zurich, Basel, and Switzerland which resulted in the fact that a lot of Englishmen were educated under men like John Calvin and Theodore Bazaar. And so here you have a lot of English ministers who knew about Reformed theology, but they were never able to really study Reformed theology in great Reformed centers, now actually sitting under the teaching of guys like Calvin, Bazaar, and Zwingli. And so when Mary eventually died and her sister Elizabeth came to the throne and invited all of them back, there was a great flourishing of Reformed theology in England because of these men who now sat under the teaching of John Calvin, Beza, and Zwingli came back to the Church of England in order to address a lot of the issues that they saw at that time. And so under Elizabeth I, we saw that she reinstated the um, Protestant faith, which is quite interesting because she was born to Henry's second wife. And so if Elizabeth rejected the Protestant faith and kept to Catholicism, she would have been illegitimate to the throne, since the only reason she had the throne was because of her father rejecting Catholicism. So it's this, this really interesting, weird sort of political game that was played in the church at that time. But just so you can keep track, so far we have Protestantism is great, Catholicism is great, let's kill the Protestants, and now you have the Protestants coming back. So just imagine being a Protestant at that time, being, being reformed at that time. Like the king says we can worship. Oh, the queen wants to kill us. They've killed 800 of our people, and now we can kind of worship God again, but we're not really sure because it, it was really chaos at that time if you were a Christian, especially a reformed Christian, as part of the Church of England. And this is why it's important for us to note two things as we study the Westminster Firstly, politics and religion were intertwined in, at that time period. You know, the, the notion that the, the Reformation was purely a religious movement, you know, while it was religious, yes, you know, sola gras, saved by grace, through faith, you know, we believe in the scriptures alone. We, we need to see that the, the Reformation, as well as the Church of England's rise, was very political as well, since the, the king or the queen at that time had a great power in determining what gets taught in the church as well as what gets defined as orthodox. If you have a person who is Catholic, then reform teaching was not orthodox. And if you have a person who is sympathetic to the reformed faith, then reform teaching would be seen as orthodox. And so 
Whatever king or queen or monarch ultimately sat on the throne would determine the trajectory of the Church of England. And so this is where we get to the Westminster Confession and the drafting of the Westminster. After Elizabeth, we saw King James coming and he was generally sympathetic to Reformed faith. That is where we get the King James translation from. He, he authorized the, the Bible to be translated and we get the King James. But he was also, I would say, he was on the fence on a lot of issues. And so when his son Charles came to be the king, he sent many of his delegates to the Synod of Dort, for example, and he tried to make the values and the teachings of the Church of England applicable to all of the other churches within the Britain, the United Kingdom. And I would say this was ultimately the straw that broke the camel's back, as, as they say. Because what Charles tried to do is he tried to impose Anglican worship practices in Presbyterian Scottish churches. And so one of the men that was exiled during the reign of Mary was John Knox, who studied under Calvin and went back to Scotland. And instead of him giving them Anglican teaching, John Knox took the teachings of John Calvin gave it to the Scottish church, and that is where we get Presbyterianism from. And if you've ever watched Braveheart, you'll know that Scots don't like to be told what to do by Englishmen. And this was exactly the same case. The Scottish church did not like the Anglican church telling them how to have worship services. And so that, coupled with various political things that happened between the Scottish and the English, started the English Civil War in 1642, which, led, which, which was until 1649. For seven years, there was civil war. And an assembly were called, the Westminster Assembly, with various preachers from the Church of England, various delegates from Presbyterian churches in Scotland, and they had to sit down at Westminster Abbey and decide what is it that we believe as Christians about various doctrinal topics in order to bring peace to our nation. And so when you read the Westminster Confession, this is the history that was behind this. You know, there was various people killed, queens and kings rose and fall, civil war, and there was this call, okay, one of the ways in which we can stop the civil war, one of the ways in which we can determine what we as Christians believe, both Presbyterian and Anglican, is to come together and decide on a general confession, a general consensus of what we're going to be teaching our people in our churches and what we're going to be holding our leaders a standard to. Because the kings and queens were then held to a standard of the church as well. And so I would say the main thing I would want to look at today and throughout the courses in the coming weeks is where do we find creeds and confessions in the Bible. Because you can be sitting there and be like, okay, this is all great. That was a great history lesson. Thanks. It's all great that we know what creeds and confessions are. But I don't see in my Bible where it tells me use a creed or a confession. I don't see in my Bible where it tells me that these things are important. And so to prove the claim that yes, the confessions are in fact biblical, and they're not just based on biblical principles, but when we survey the biblical text, we actually see that both in the old as well as in the new, the people of God have always used a form of creed or confession to provide a guardrail for their theology.
And so I'm going to be looking at seven biblical texts. So two in the old and then five in the new. So if you want to page with me, you're more than welcome. The two Old Testament passages that I'm going to be focusing on first is Exodus 13, verse 14, and then Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. So Exodus 13, 14. Exodus 13, verse 14. So, in Exodus 13, verse 14 to 15, we see that it says, And when in that time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first open the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. And so in this instance, we see the Israelites sitting at the Passover meal. And God, knowing kids, knew that the children would go to their parents and ask them, why are we celebrating this? So for those of you that don't know, the Passover meal was instituted by God as a means for the Israelites to remember what he has done in Egypt when he delivered them. So they would partake of unleavened bread, which would signify the fact that they had to rush out of Egypt and that they didn't have time to cook the bread, so the bread is unleavened. And they would take a cup with wine, which they would pass around, which was seen as God's covenant, which would resemble the blood of the on the doorpost. They would drink wine, and the, the wine would then resemble God's covenant faithfulness to them. And so as the Israelites would sit down and enjoy this meal, you, with children, would say, well, yeah, my child would also ask me, why did we not bake this bread? Why are we drinking this wine and passing it around, speaking of God's covenant faithfulness? And so in this passage, we see that God gave the Israelites a means to describe to their children what He has done for them in Egypt. And so the Bible presents this pattern, which the commentators called word, act, word, revelation. And so what this means is that God gives a word. The word is depart from Egypt. He sends Moses. He gives his word. You're going to be departing from Egypt. Then you have an act. The act is his deliverance of them from Egypt. And then he gives them a word describing to them the significance of their deliverance and the fact that they should have this Passover meal. And so we see the same pattern in this Passover meal celebration. God instructs them to do the Passover, the word. The act is performed. They do the act. And so thirdly, we see the parents now presenting the word of God to their children of God's deliverance, of God's act in Egypt. And so God in this passage instructs the parents of the children to instruct their kids of what God has done for them in Egypt. You could almost say it's a tradition passed down from parent to parent because ultimately that is what traditions are it is telling our children or other people what God has done if we look at the tradition of the Christian faith what do we believe we believe God gave a word I'm going to be sending a Messiah I'm going to be sending a man to deliver you there's an act Christ came Christ delivered and we have another word it's God reminding us that we are to share 
what Christ has done for us to others. And so that is ultimately when we speak about tradition being handed down, that is what a tradition is. It's telling your children or telling unbelievers the acts of God. And when we look at the Israelites and when we look at the New Testament, that is what we, are, we as Christians are called to do. And that is what we believe the creeds and the confessions allow us to do. The creeds and the confessions give us a summary of what God has done, which we then can present to our children as well as to our churches. And so the second passage is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. So as you're paging to Deuteronomy 6, this is a very famous passage called the Shema. And ultimately what the Shema is, is it was a creed or a confession of the Israelites of what they believed about the nature of God and what they believed as God's people. So as we get to Deuteronomy 6 verse 4, we see, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. So for those of you that are unaware, this is probably one of the most important passages to Jews. Jews would have recited this daily. Jews would have recited this to their children. They would have taught their people that the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. We shall love Him with our hearts, our souls, and with all our might. And so, when we look at this, we might see, how, how is this a confession? But it's important for us to see what this Shema did. So, if we look back at the definition of a confession, we said a confession is like a guardrail which keeps us on the steps so that we don't fall down heresy. What is the one thing that the Israelites did that caused God great anger? If we think about all of Matt's sermons up to this point, it was Israel's worship of other gods. It was Israel's consistent sinning of worshiping, whether it be Baal, or whether it be Molech, it the, the, doesn't matter. Israel had an incessant sin in worshiping other gods. And what is the thing that God tells them to profess daily? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And so this is what Israel needed to profess daily. Since when you are daily confessing and professing that our God is the only God, how are you going to be going to the temple 20-30 minutes later and worshipping Baal? This Shema provided a guardrail for the Israelites that were so prone to slip down the steps of monotheism. And this is what the confessions do today. As we are prone to fall down certain steps of heresy, whatever that heresy might be, the confessions bring us back to the nature of God and how we are to worship Him rightly. You cannot take a confession like the Shema or the Apostles' Creed and confess that with your mouth, yet at the same time do the thing it prohibits you from doing. And that is why we as Presbyterians believe in the confession of faith. Because it's not merely something that we confess, but we believe that the Spirit applies that thing which we confess to our hearts in order that our actions may be changed. Like this morning we confessed 30, right? It asks us, how does the Spirit apply redemption to us? It applies redemption to us by faith, by uniting us to Christ. We can just say that every day and it won't have any effect. 
But when we confess that, we confess something. We confess that our faith is applied in a way that we are united to Christ. That unification to Christ, when we confess that, will lead us to be like, Oh, wow, that, that sin is calling on me very hard today. I, I really want to do that sin, but this morning I confessed that I am united to Christ by faith. And that is what I want to encourage you with, that these confessions, and every, every Sunday when we, when we do the confession, that this is not words. These are not just words that we confess every week. But these things should be applied in our hearts because they will have an effect in the way that we live, or at least they should. So, as we move from the Old to the New Testament, we see Paul, in his writings to Timothy and Titus, speak about something which he calls a trustworthy saying. So if you page to 1 Timothy, there's various passages um, that we're going to go through. But how we are to understand these trustworthy sayings is what made these sayings trustworthy. If we we just look at the word, trustworthy means these sayings are worthy to be trusted, worthy to be believed. And so I would contend that the reason these sayings were trustworthy, worthy to be believed, worthy to be trusted, is because Paul grounds these sayings, and I will try to show you that, in the teachings of Christ. All of the things which Paul calls Timothy to trust as trustworthy sayings are teachings we can also find either in the Gospels or in the traditions of the church. And so the first one we're going to be looking at is in 1 Timothy 1.15. 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul says to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And so here Paul is saying, I've got a trustworthy saying. You ready for it? This is the trustworthy saying. Christ came into the world to save sinners. So when we survey the Gospels, all four of them would point to this exact fact. Jesus taught this to the Pharisees. He came into the world to save sinners. The thief on the cross. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So Paul is saying here to Timothy, this thing that I'm going to tell you is trustworthy because Christ taught this. Believe this. What I'm telling you now, believe this. Because he's just reinstating Christ's teaching. He's just reiterating what Christ taught to his disciples, that he came into the world to save sinners. If you go to chapter 3, 1 Timothy 3, we see in verse 1, Paul again saying, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be in the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And so, if you guys can remember, in the book of Titus, Paul says that he left Titus in Crete because he desired that there be elders in every town. So we see that Paul himself, as well as the other apostles, were really concerned about church order and church leadership. The apostles sought to establish churches with elders and deacons who could be led by them. And so Paul's trustworthy saying merely reflects the apostles' deep commitment to church order. This is demonstrated in 1 Timothy 3, other places in the New Testament, as well as Titus, as which I mentioned. And so The saying is trustworthy. Why is the saying trustworthy? Because we have taught you this. The apostles themselves have taught them this by the way in which they've lived, by the way in which 
they have built up elders and deacons within the churches. If you go to chapter 4 in 1 Timothy, chapter 4, 79 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather train yourself up in godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And so this third one is specifically referring to the practice and training up of godliness. And we see Jesus in Luke 18 saying, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom who will not receive many more time in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. And so we see in in this passage in Timothy that Paul is again echoing the words of Christ in training up for godliness, renouncing everything for the sake of Christ and pursuing godliness and holiness. We see Paul teaching in 2 Timothy as well, saying that the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Again, Paul is saying this thing is trustworthy. Why? Well, we see Jesus teaching a similar thing in Matthew 10. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so in all of these trustworthy sayings that we see, Paul teaching Timothy exactly the same things which Christ taught his apostles, which they then would have continued to teach the church. And so why is this important? What does this have to do with confessions or creeds? Well, it comes down to this, that the teaching of Christ to the apostles passed down to Paul, was passed down to Timothy, as it is passed down to the early church, to the church after them, to the church after them, to the church after them. And that is why the creeds and the confessions are so important. Because it puts us within a tradition that is worthy to be trusted. It is trustworthy. And that is why it is so important for us to be teaching the confessions and for us to realize It's so important for us to realize why we believe these things. Because they came down from Christ as a trustworthy saying. Paul taught them to Timothy and the church has taught them throughout the ages. And so when we look at the teachings of the Old Testament as well as the New, I would like to highlight three things. I got this from a book by a guy called John Fesco where He says that we should note three things when we look at the biblical teachings of the creeds and the confessions. These are in the notes as well. But the first thing is the biblical warrant for and necessity for the creeds. Secondly, the biblical protection against dead tradition. And thirdly, the relationship between confessions and pious living. And so the first thing that I want to highlight and encourage you guys with is that The biblical confessions run in two directions. The first one is they look back at God's work, God's redemptive work. It's almost like erecting an Ebenezer for God and reminding the church 
of what God has done. But it is also looking forward by teaching our children and by looking forward teaching the church of where we are going as God's people. We, saw, we see that they serve both to catechize the church of what God has done, but also to teach the church and raise the church up in order that the church may not fall into heresy. The reason we look back is in order that we may be built up, but we also look forward in order to defend the church against heresy. And so a Puritan called Thomas Manton, is he said that Christ has given apostles and prophets to the church to write scripture. In a similar way, he has given pastors and teachers to open and apply scriptures so that we might be delivered to the saints and also to vindicate the doctrine when it is opposed. And so what he is saying here is that the, the role of teachers, and I would argue the role of the confession, is both to teach the church, but also to guard against heresy, to guard against doctrine when it is opposed. And we see this throughout the ages, whether it is Athanasius who opposed Arius, whether it is Augustine who opposed Pelagius, whether it is Martin Luther who stood against Rome. We see that the historic confessions provide a way for us and the church to, like, to stand against heresy, to stand against ways in which orthodox doctrine is opposed by men. And so this leads us to a question which says, well, okay, I understand that the confessions are great, but I've seen many confessional churches. They have these great traditions and they celebrate all of these liturgical calendars, but they're dead. There is dead tradition and dead confessionalism in the churches. And J.B. Fesco would argue that the Bible as well as the confession should protect us against dead traditionalism. The Bible tells us that human traditions are something which are to be avoided. Paul tells us that we should, in Galatians 1 and Colossians 2, he tells us that we should not fall trap to human traditions or human philosophies. Jesus also rebukes the Pharisees for holding on to human traditions or religious traditions. Yet in the second Thessalonians, Paul tells us to stand firm and hold on to the traditions that you were taught. And so, how are we to understand? We see that tradition is both rejected, but we're also taught to hold on to tradition. And I would say, the antidote to both of these is to be like the Bereans in the book of Acts, where Paul came to teach the Bereans, and they went to the Scriptures to verify all things which Paul taught them. And I would encourage you to do the same with the Westminster Confession as we go in the coming weeks. I'll try to show this as well. But that we take the confession and compare the confession to Scripture and verify whether what we are reading in the confession is truly taught by Scripture. Because this will help us in two ways. This will first, well, help us not to fall into heresy. But secondly, it will teach us that tradition that we are given by the Westminster Confession is trustworthy. It is a trustworthy saying, using Paul's language, that we read in the confession. It is worthy to be believed and worthy to be held onto. 
And so Paul famously opposed Peter when he transgressed the boundaries of orthodoxy. And we are to do the same. We are to oppose things which transgress the boundaries of orthodoxy. And if we come to the scriptures and we're like, this confession is transgressing the boundaries of orthodoxy, we should reject it. But if like the Bereans, we come to Westminster chapter 15, we compare it to the scriptures, we're like, yeah, that is what the scriptures teach us. This is clear in scripture. Then we are to hold on to it like a trustworthy saying. And then thirdly, I would like to highlight the relationship between the confessions and pious living. When we see the Israelites promoting the Shema, confessing the Shema, teaching their children about what God has done in Egypt, we see that their confession leads to practical living. We see that their confession leads to pious living. Because what they confessed with their mouth and what they believed in their hearts was one and the same. Their confession that their God is one God was also in their hearts, which led them not to worship the idol gods. And so when we confess chapter 30 or question 30 in the Westminster Catechism, we say that Christ's that Christ applies His redemption to us and He works faith and thereby we are united to Him. When we confess that in church, this should lead us to pious living. This should change the way in which we live. I would say that love for God is a fruit of truly understanding the confessions. If we come to the Westminster Confession and it leads us to increase in our love for God, we have truly understood the confessions and their purpose. Because those, that's why they were written. The confessions weren't just written to be studied by smart academics. They weren't just written to be recited by uninterested churchgoers. The confession was written in order that we may learn who God is, that we may worship and love Him. And so I would, I would argue that covenant and confession go hand in hand. God established a covenant with Israel before asking them to confess their faith in Him. And I would say similarly, God establishes covenant with us prior to Him asking us to confess what we believe. So God loves us. He shows His love to us by including us in the covenant. And our confession of what we believe should lead us to love God as well. These two things should never stand in opposition to each other. Our confession and study of the confession should always lead us to love God and to love His people. And so with that, I would like to draw us to a conclusion. So as, as we went through today, I know it was a really uh, on-the-go. Matt says that this was my hazing period. So he, he says that he did this with Peter as well. The first time that Peter had to teach or preach, there was something. Uh, I'm not so sure if Matt has really covered. But, but regardless, um, as, we, as we come to the, the confession in, in the coming weeks, uh, I would encourage you to, to study the confession um, prior to coming to class. But I also encourage you not to view the confession as something that's merely to be studied. 
I would, I, would, I would argue that similar to the teaching of Paul, not on the same level as the teaching of Paul, but the catechism is trustworthy. The confession is trustworthy. It is worthy to be believed. And if it is worthy to be believed, it's worthy to be applied in our daily lives. So with that, I'm, I'm going to conclude in prayer and then call on to Peter to conclude the service.